This is the seventh episode of The Anatomy Covered, and it's entitled, Do I Have Taphophobia? 18th century England was a place for revivalists. Its aristocracy and parliament were packed with deeply religious men who had a strong missionary desire to convert the world's noblest savages to the faith. It was just the perfect backdrop to those who, with religious zeal, were strong believers in the powers of resurrection. The great hanging tree at Tyburn, um, which nowadays in London is somewhere near uh, Admiralty Arch, was said to have been so strong that its three large boughs could each hang eight people simultaneously. The crowds that gathered for these things were phenomenal and they coursed the three-mile trek from Newgate, the prison where the condemned were kept, out to Tyburn. And they'd have heard the chiming of the bell of St Sepulchre first thing in the morning on the day of someone's execution. The troop would have moved slowly past High Holborn, for those who know London, out to the tree itself, stopping first at the Smithfield markets to pick up even more of a carnival atmosphere. There was plenty of opportunity to pelt rotten fruit at the prisoner to witness their demeanour or perhaps their defiance and to hear someone's last words. The court clerk would have read aloud in a polished and practised cry, something to the effect that you that are condemned to die repent with lamentable tears, ask mercy of the Lord for salvation of your souls. The commentator Alexander Andrews in his 1855 illustrations of the manners and customs of our grandfathers, what a great title for a book, had called London, quote, a city of gallows, unquote. And the description wasn't far off. The sort of way that Paris was redefined in cruelty for her guillotine. Andrew's book, or rather any more a pamphlet, is also a great resource for informing you about the best way to treat your wig and also about the fine etiquette of duelling. It's a great book. But London was also a city of prisons. Of the 18 prisons in and around London, Ludgate was for debtors and bankrupts. The fleet housed offenders of the courts of chancery. The Star Chamber and Newgate were specifically built for felons and those awaiting execution. The clink was used for religious offenders and misdemeanours. The King's Bench for debtors and trespassers and the Marshal Sea for piracy and other maritime offences. The East Smithfield Prison was for petty thieves, the New Prison for heretics and blasphemers. Bethlehem, or Bedlam, was the main madhouse for the insane, and Bridewell was a house of correction for prostitutes and vagrants. To walk around its streets, just as today I suppose in some ways, would have been an extraordinary and an eye-opening experience. With that religious fervour, the people were strong believers, as I've said, in the idea of resurrection. And as witnesses to this occasional miracle, they had good reason to believe, or at least often as not, hope. 
The old ways of hanging were, to say the least, pathetic. They might have had the condemned sitting on a horse that would be slapped out from under him, or else they'd have to climb up a short ladder that was then just kicked away. It wasn't until 1850 that the long drop method gained in popularity. And prior to this, there was the agony, sometimes 20 minutes or so, of the short drop um, with people with a noose around their neck sort of suffocating after a chair underneath had been kicked away. And that sort of thing, not to put too fine a point on it, was okay if you broke your neck. Then you were instantly dead. But if you didn't break your neck, you were waiting around, so to speak, to asphyxiate to death. And the method wasn't 100% successful. The long drop was devised by the professional executioner William Marwood in 1872, but is basically based on the falling weight of the individual, so that about 5,000 newtons of force, for those who are interested in the physics, can then go through the neck. It should for most be enough to fracture their cervical vertebrae high at the top of the spinal cord, but not enough to decapitate the victim. A nice sort of set of mathematics to contemplate. Well, sadly, there are certainly some famous examples of decapitation during hanging, one rather recently, but I won't go there in this podcast. It's not an uplifting subject for discussion. On the nicer side of things, there are great stories of revivals after hangings too, some like Anne Green back in 1650, an Oxford servant woman sentenced for dissection of her body after her execution. Romantic stories have her stirring under the anatomist's knife after she'd been duly hanged and transported to Surgeon's Hall. Of course, they're, they're not accurate, but what is undisputed is that Green was prosecuted under the Concealment at Birth of Bastards Act of 1624. What a great name for a piece of legislation. Anyway, after she miscarried in the privy with the child of the grandson of her master... It was then an offence to conceal the birth of an illegitimate child, and those so accused were then, as a matter of course, also accused, as Anne was, of murder. So as to ensure that she was dead after the hang, a soldier hit her in the head a few times with the handle of his musket. Some of her family members thumped her on the chest and pulled with their entire weight on the body while she was still attached by the noose just to ensure that she'd gone. Now, she didn't actually get as far as the knife since the coffin was opened the next day and she was seen by those who were about to do her autopsy to still be breathing. So all around pretty unpleasant kind of story. She was fortunately slated to be on the dissecting table of the kindly Thomas Willis, the discoverer of the anatomy of the circulation of the brain and later the Sedlian Professor of Natural Philosophy, and Willis's assistant, Dr. William, later Sir William Petty, one of the founding members of the Royal Society. And instead of opening her up, Willis sent Green down to be warmed, to be bled a pint that was used to cure almost anything, including near-death experiences. Now, that would have done her quite a bit of harm, actually. And to have warm cordial poured down her throat. Someone even tickled her throat with a feather after which she opened her eyes. Someone else thought it before then a good idea to give Anne a hot enema. And they even put her in a bed with another uh, woman to improve her bodily warmth. Anyhow, 12 hours later, she was able to speak and answer questions. 
Despite some protests, Green was given an official reprieve by the governor, Colonel Kelsey, who declared that he was certain that the hand of God had preserved a likely innocent woman. There were so many people who came to see her that her father charged them for admission. It's not an uncommon finding in this day and age. Taking her coffin with her and moving 20 miles north to the village of Steeple Barton, she went on to marry and bore three children. his sentence of execution was commuted to transportation to the colonies. Duell at 17 was a far more unsavoury customer than Anne Green and he was convicted as an accessory to the rape of Sarah Griffin in 1740. Duell was duly hanged at Tyburn with four others but of course he wasn't and after being sent to Boston he's thought to have died a natural death in 1805. Um, you can find a story about that at the Chambers Journal of Popular Literature and Science and the Arts. I think it's entitled Not Hung Enough. And there are, of course, other such stories like the case of Ewan MacDonald, hung in 1752 for murder. He stabbed a man in the neck during a fight, killing him instantly. And MacDonald, not content with just that, went back to the pub and argued with the other drinkers, breaking another man's arm. Actually, MacDonald was the first man to be dissected under the new Murder Act of 1752, which allowed the judges the discretion to add the sentence of dissection to one of execution for a capital crime. That was how the surgeons got many of their bodies, certainly after 1752 and before the Anatomy Act of 1832. So the story goes that MacDonald was there lying stripped on the surgeon's table, but the surgeon had to leave the room so as to attend some emergency at the eye infirmary. And when he got back after only a short while, he found old MacDonald sitting up on the slab. And the story goes a little further, with the surgeon in such great need and expectation of a body to dissect that he struck MacDonald with a nearby wooden mallet, killing him instantly. Well, mallets would be pretty handy in a dissecting room, I gather, as are chisels and saws, so no great surprise there. But who is then the worst criminal? The mallet, by the way, is still on display at Barber's Surgeon's Hall in Newcastle. And in that neck of the woods, Half-Hung MacDonald, as he was called, is pretty famous. Half-Hang-It 
Maggie Dickinson was apparently jolted back to life after she was hung on the rough cobblestone carriage ride back to the cemetery outside Edinburgh in a little place called Musselboro where I had to live for five weeks in the mid-1980s studying the course for the Edinburgh Surgical Fellowship. I'm not entirely sure that a lot of the streets have changed that much. Well, enough about all of that. Uh, but my point is, uh, even if I've arrived at it long ways, that a combined religious fervour and a strong belief in the idea of revival or bodily resection also led to a fear that you could be buried alive. That was another concern of this kind of Victorian era and before. And since this did actually occur, not with a little frequency, it wasn't quite the irrational fear that some might describe as a true case of what is now called taphophobia. We'll get into that after a little musical interlude. fear that you'll be buried alive or by mistake. That's what we're talking about. Of course, I also appreciate that it relies on someone who can pronounce you dead correctly. So it needs to be a process of errors. Because resurrection was so common in 18th century England, people were interested in mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or using the power of electricity, so-called galvanism, a kind of crude defibrillation to start the heart and the Royal Humane Society was actually founded to revive those who had drowned. Taphophobia it seems was a morbid fear of Frederick Chopin, of George Washington, Hans Christian Andersen and Alfred Nobel. Now this fear was the basis for a series of modifications to coffins, the development of what are called safety coffins, although many of these additional security devices added to coffins were more for the fear that they'd be disturbed and that the body would be removed after burial so that the anatomists or surgeons could dissect it. These were for protection, not for picking up people who'd been erroneously buried alive. Now, these safety coffins could be designed in such a way that your relatives could actually keep an eye on the body, as it were. You could watch it decompose to such a point that it would be pretty well useless to any would-be surgeon or anatomist. And that's how gory this whole period of history was. And I'll come back to it in other podcasts. You can look forward to that. For those with the taphophobia, some of the 
Coffins, for example, had a glass lid. You could look out if you woke up, or your friends could intermittently check up on you. Uh, Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick had such a coffin with a lid, and he always carried two keys, one for the lid and one for the outer door to his pre-built tomb. A German priest, Pastor Beck, had a device which was a small ear trumpet which was attached directly to the coffin so that as he walked past he could smell it for the smell of a putrefying body or, or hear the cries of someone trapped inside. I mean, these people were serious about these things. Others had a rope connected to an above-ground bell, we know about that, or a, a little flag which the nearly deceased could then sort of wave. Some fancy coffins had an inbuilt telephone, although I'm not too sure what the reception was like. In one, someone inside a coffin could set off a pyrotechnic display, and in others, there were connecting feeding tubes and breathing reeds. Dr Adolf Gutsmuth of Seehausen carried out an open experiment, inviting an audience to show how he could be fed through his safety coffin. And it was big news that he ate a meal whilst buried underground, a meal of bratwurst, sauerkraut, beer, and those nice little dumpling spätzels. With a viewing coffin, devices, once decomposition was evident, that uh, could have a trap door which could then be opened, and that would then let the body fall into a compartment below. Uh, and then that would be then capable of being reused. Rich people could, of course, afford heavy table tombstones, vaults and mausoleums, but many created their own mort safes, as they became known, steel and iron cages lashed around tombs either above or below ground. And the locked iron plates held over a coffin with rods is a particularly Scottish invention, you can see these in, in parts of Scotland. By contrast, the poor could, of course, only detect violations of their tomb by the display of flowers and stones on graves, had they or hadn't they been disturbed. And one last alternative was, of course, the coffin torpedo, marketed out of Columbus, Ohio, patented by a local artist, Philip K. Clover, in 1878, patent number 208672, if you want it, and his ingenious device detonated a small explosive if the coffin was interfered with. The idea of coffin security was, of course, just as much about the nefarious practices of grave robbing and body snatching as it was about taphophobia. I finally come round to my subject, because although body snatching or grave robbing was rife throughout the United Kingdom and North America, making dead bodies clandestinely available to the waiting dissectors and surgeons, some particular examples of grave disturbance merit as here a separate podcast. In America, aristocrats, politicians, judges would have felt that they had forked out enough money to protect their dead and themselves after they died. Things unfortunately came to a head when the body of Senator John Scott Harrison was discovered to have been taken from his tomb and found hauled up on a rope in the Cincinnati Medical College in Ohio in 1878. That's a particularly egregious story, and it showed that no one, no matter their station in life, was safe. <coughs> Scott Harrison was a US senator whose father was William Henry Harrison, the ninth uh, 
President of the United States, that unfortunate president who took his oath of office in the cold of a crisp January morning in 1841 and who ignored the advice to wear an overcoat in his inauguration speech. Of course, he gave one of the longest inauguration speeches in history. Didn't need to do that, of course. Anyway, the man gets pneumonia, and uh, despite the very best treatment of cupping and bloodletting, enemas and mustard plasters, he died 31 days later. Scott Harrison is also the father of the 23rd US President, Benjamin Harrison. So the family were connected both in politics and also in medicine. Like his father, the president, Scott Harrison, had studied medicine but soon abandoned it. And in Scott's case, he left medicine to rather become an Ohio farmer before entering politics as a Whig and then being re-elected uh, as an oppositionist, one of those in the North declaring themselves quite openly as against slavery. Scott's cousin, Anna Short, was married to a renowned Kentucky surgeon, Dr Charles Wilkins Short, famous for his skill in cutting the stone. And Scott's brother Benjamin studied medicine. His sister Mary Symes Harrison married Dr John Thornton. His daughter Betsy married Dr George S. Easton. John Scott Harrison, apart from his family connections, is the only person to have been the son and also the father of a US president himself had a rather undistinguished political career as a US senator, and he died of unknown causes at the age of 74. Now, the day of Harrison's funeral at the Congress Green Cemetery, North Bend, the nearby grave of a family friend, Augustus Devon, who had died of tuberculosis and who'd been buried the previous week, was found to have been disturbed with Devon's body missing. It wasn't the case of Scott already good enough reason to be concerned about the safety of his body. Firstly, the cemetery was close enough to Cincinnati Medical College, a favourite haunt for the resurrectionists who disinterred remains. And to top this off, there had recently been a lot of disturbed graves in the area and now Devon's body had gone missing. With old Scott dying from uncertain cause, the general public also knew that the doctor's like to get their hands on bodies like those to dissect, even covering Scott's coffin with a giant slab stone and bracken. The family members were nervous and dissatisfied. Next day, suspicious John Harrison, John Scott's son, and his grandson, George Eaton Jr., returned to the cemetery. A friend of Devon and one of Scott Harrison's sons was suspicious enough of the medical college, apparently after receiving a tip-off, although we don't know any more here, that they go there with search warrants. So they search the whole school and they don't find any trace of Devon. There, with two officers, they all saw a rope attached to a closed trapdoor and, curious, they lifted it up with a windlass. The face and head were covered with a cloth but noting the hair to be grey, they knew it couldn't have been Devon. One imagines that the curiosity probably got the better of them. Who among us would have lifted that cloth? Who would have left it well alone? Even though Harrison's beard had been cut off, they recognised in horror that this was the body of their father and grandfather, the naked body of the senator himself, hauled up from below with a rope around its neck. And the two men debated amongst themselves whether they should return the body to its sepulchre and never inform the rest of the family to spare them unnecessary suffering. 
But this was not the sort of thing that stays buried, so to speak. The matter was extensively reported in the Cincinnati Daily Gazette, but it's also made its way onto the front page of the New York Times on May the 31st, 1878. Devon's body, by the way, was ultimately found in a brine barrel at the Medical College in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with its anatomy demonstrated, Dr William J. Herdman demanding $30 reimbursement for release of the body as costs that he'd incurred for its procurement. wasn't concerned about the illegality at all. That any man of privilege and position could be trundled off for dissection from the most respectable cemetery was intolerable, and it caused public outrage. Even the rich, it seemed, were not immune to this type of skullduggery, although it's likely that Harrison was simply caught up in the lucrative and active trade of body shipment rather than being specifically targeted. But in the prosecution of this case, the members of the medical faculty were completely open in their grand jury testimony about their involvement in a body trade for dissection, which tended to target the graves of paupers from whom all marks of identification were typically removed. From there... It transpired that bodies once procured would best be transported in pickle barrels to fictitious out-of-state addresses. But this was only in part a matter of money. The common burial pits were most at risk for the disappearance of bodies, but a healthy income and a secure vault did not always protect. The double or sometimes triple coffining with wood and lead and then wood by the wealthy, often did not put off the most determined resurrectionists, and these efforts provided little benefit over a common pit burial, even when it was advertised that coffins could be made theft-proof. The ingenuity of secure clamping coffin designs and blocking mort safes fuelled an entire patent security industry, and it forced those less well-off to store their dead relatives in what were called death houses. For the service, armed sentries were paid and often given free liquor to guard graves until sufficient time had elapsed that the bodies were so putrefied as to be useless to the surgeons. Such was the milieu, rich or poor, around death. All of this changed the law, of course. Unlike the multitude of their poorer cousins, the wealthy could influence the legislators, and John Scott Harrison's case, or should I say casket, changed Ohio law pretty quickly. From there, so goes the rest of the country, a bit like their electoral college. Outrage initiated the 1881 Ohio anatomy law, which allowed unclaimed bodies after death to be handed over to the medical schools body snatching for the purposes of supplying local medical schools for a fee was gazumped by this simple marketing move and the grave robbers were soon enough simply put out of business. The Harrison estate sued the Ohio Medical College for $10,000 in three separate civil suits but no one knows whether they ever got their money. The remains of John Scott Harrison are now buried alongside his father and mother in the William Henry Harrison Tomb State Memorial, a mile west of North Bend, out on Route 60. The site was refurbished after William Henry Harrison and his wife were exhumed from their grave sites, which had become somewhat neglected and run down at the old Harrison property on Mount Nebo.
Finally, it needn't come as a total surprise that a politician, even a minor celebrity like John Scott Harrison, was at risk of having his body stolen. A plot to steal the body of President Abraham Lincoln was only foiled at the last minute in 1876, some 11 years after his assassination. This is not an anatomy-related story, per se, so I'll go over only some of the uh, details, but it's an interesting one. Anatomy-related to some extent, anyway. A notorious counterfeiter, Big Jim Keneally, had planned to steal Lincoln's body from its gravesite in the Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois, and hold it as ransom so he could bargain with the authorities to get his master engraver, one Ben Boyd, out of prison. That's for uh, uh, counterfeit money. The uh, secret plan fell through pretty rapidly when one of the conspirators became pretty drunk and blabbed the plot to a local lady of the night. And before long, virtually everyone in town knew about it. That first attempt foiled. Keneally shifted his operations to Chicago, where he teamed up with a local resurrectionist, Louis G. Swagless. Getting on a train back to Chicago, the two men planned to leave a small, torn piece of a London newspaper at the scene of the crime, after which, in this great plan, they could then approach the Illinois governor and offer to return Lincoln's body, once they'd purloined it, of course, for a cache of gold and for the waiting Ben Boyd. Their proof of claim would then be that they supplied the rest of the missing page of the London newspaper that would, of course, have been a perfect fit to the piece that they'd expected the police would have kept as evidence. Perfect, yes? Keneally remained in Chicago, dispatching Swegglers, Jack Hughes, a local counterfeiter, a Terence Mullen, and a fourth man, the carriage getaway driver, William Neely. The theft of Lincoln's body was to be carried out on November the 7th, federal election night, so that no one would notice strange men lurking around town. The tomb held not only Lincoln, but also his sons, Willie and Eddie. The president's coffin was encased in a marble sarcophagus above ground, and as Lincoln had been embalmed, Keneally assumed that something would be left of the president to bargain with. Well, the men got into the cemetery, all right, breaking open the lock on the tomb, lifting the lid of Lincoln's sarcophagus and half-lifting the heavy lead-lined coffin out of its crypt. It had been bolted shut and no one attempted to open it. But Swegless was no resurrectionist, rather a common horse thief who was acting as an informant for the Secret Service and who gave the signal for the Secret Serviceman to enter the tomb along with a journalist. But there were no signs of the men. Neely, too, by the way, in this plot, was a backup government informant. And in the pitch black, the Secret Service opened fire onto the other side, assuming it to be the robbers, but they'd opened fire on their own men, including a Pinkerton agent. Hughes and Mullen and his accomplices were caught ten days later in Chicago and brought to trial eight months afterwards by a civil action of Lincoln's son, Robert, who later became President Garfield, uh, and after Garfield's assassination, President Arthur's Secretary of War. But back in 1876, there was no statute that grave robbing was a crime, and the best they could do was to charge the men with conspiracy to steal a coffin. Even on that charge, four of the jury voted for acquittal, 
but in vote after revote, the four were convinced that there should be some penalty and the men were sent down to Joliet Prison for a couple of years. Keneally was not charged with this crime, such as it was, although he did the rounds of jail for some years afterwards, not surprisingly for counterfeiting money. Well, not quite an anatomy story to finish, but still something about the sanctity of a body. The directors of the Lincoln Monument Association, fearing some repeat of this debacle, hid Lincoln's body for two years in an iron coffin under some floorboards in a cellar below the tomb. They reburied Lincoln's body down there, and when Mary Todd Lincoln, the old First Lady, died in 1882, they buried her nearby. No one knew about this well-kept secret, and people still went to the Lincoln Memorial to pay their respects, even though the sarcophagus visitors were revering was long since empty. Both Abram and Mary were reburied in 1887 in a makeshift place inside the tomb. Lincoln's coffin was finally formally interred in a pit of poured concrete on September the 26th. 1901, during a refurbishment of the entire memorial. Well, according to Dale Carnegie, who wrote a beautiful biography called Lincoln the Unknown, it had been moved, that's the body, before this, for unexplained reasons, some 17 times. Before they buried the president that last time, however, the party opened the lid to look once more upon Lincoln some 36 years after Booth had shot and killed him. A young child, Fleetwood Lindley, who became an Illinois florist and who only died in 1963, was one of the last to see him, and he reported that but for a touch of mould on the wing of Mr Lincoln's tie, his embalming had held up pretty well. Dead or alive, it was still one of the most recognisable faces on earth. Well, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.